Hey there, listeners. Before we get started with today's episode, we wanted to give you a trigger warning. This week, we're talking about someone who committed sexual assault, rape, and paedophilia, among other things. We're not going to go into too much detail about these crimes, but we do have a brief discussion at the very end of the episode, just past the hour mark. So feel free to stop listening at that point and enjoy the rest of the episode. Hello and welcome back to our final episode of this series of the Cloak and Dagger podcast, the Cities edition. You are listening to your host, Will, and as always, I am joined by my co-host, Patrick. Hi, Will. We're in our final episode. Look at us. I know. And what's so great about this one is uh, in the in the previous uh, final episodes that we've done on our other series, um, I've kind of felt like, oh, well, you know, at least it's over in some ways because there's been so much work involved in it. But with this one, I feel like it's been such an achievement and I've really enjoyed it, even though it's double the length. So therefore double yeah. the work. I just loved it. And I just want to keep going, which hopefully we will. Uh, we are definitely coming back for another series. Um mm-hmm. So, yeah, look out for that. But uh, we will yeah. take a, a little bit of a break whilst we find the research. And it takes a lot of work. <laughs> Figure out what we want to do. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, because we might even take it in a different direction again. Never know. We'll see what happens. Um, but thanks for staying with us. Um, if you don't already, uh, follow us on Instagram at Cloak and Dagger Podcast, where when we are releasing episodes, we put up three posts a week. Uh, and when we're not, I put up some quizzes to keep you guys entertained mm-hmm. in the meantime. We have guest episodes and all sorts. Uh, so, yeah, just just have a look there. And, oh, if you could, please, could you go and review our podcast on, on wherever you're listening this, to this? Because it actually really helps us to expand our listenership. And we don't do this for money or anything like that. We don't make a penny from this. We just really enjoy it. And we <laughs> just want to get it out to as many people as possible so yeah 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 so and if you don't want to leave a review you can just tell a friend because i think that helps out probably even more in a certain way and you can spread the history joy exactly (laughs) sounds fun it's a very different feeling to like learning history in school which i think lots of people i mean not me and you but lots of people when they hear history they'll groan and be very bored and have to listen to a tedious teacher explain again how the the war the roses played out Ugh, whereas i think we're yeah. we're doing a good job of turning you know really exploring the fun interesting weird parts of history exactly and from a very human angle as well which is is well is we are humans taught. so yeah uh that's not what i meant oh, t- typical. <laughs> and like you yeah, well, we're not teachers you know <laughs> we're normal people <laughs> normal. sorry i don't want to be in- i don't want to be insulting to teachers they're great so. <laughs> yeah we love teachers we love teachers we love everyone um anyway firm uh, stance cloak and dagger podcast is pro teacher <laughs> Yeah, pro-teacher. I like that one. Pro-education for everyone. <laughs> yeah. All right. So uh, this week will be uh, our second episode on Venice. And as I mentioned in at the end of last week's episode, I will be taking the reins for this one for, our, for my final episode. So I'm very much looking forward to telling you all about the middle of the 18th, oh, I almost did a Patrick there, of the yeah. 18th century uh, Venice. <laughs> So let's is, get into which it. Which is 1700s for people who get confused. <laughs> it's confusing. Okay. I've complained about this far too much. <laughs> you have. All right, let's do it. Hello, friends. My name is Patrick Little, host of A Little History Podcast. If you like to learn about history yeah, a little differently, then the Little History Podcast has you sorted. Nothing is off limits as we tackle some of the well-known and not-so-well-known stories from various mythologies and folklore from around the world. So drink them if you got them and join us for a bit of shit-talking and a lot of fun. My name is Patrick Little and this is a Little History Podcast. It's our history, but like you've never heard it before. So yes, the city of Venice... When you're thinking of the city of Venice, I'm sure most of you uh, who have who have got any ideas about Venice at all are thinking sort of gondolas and the mm-hmm. Piazza San Marco, maybe the yeah. Italian job, if you're into your films. I, I, and I mean the second one, because as in the more recent one, because yeah. that was the first time I'd heard about Venice was when the... Uh, when that was the first out. time you heard about Venice, was the second... Is that the weird Mark Wahlberg one? Is what do you mean Wahlberg the weird it? Mark Wahlberg one? It is a very good film, and I was about seven when it came out, so that's all right. <laughs> I've just heard it's not as good as the original, but I mean that's that, that's a pretty high hey, bar. So 
d- yeah, I didn't say it was better than the original, but don't judge it until you've watched it. All right, all right, sure. I felt like the first time I really got an idea of Venice was, I mean, I'm sure I had a bit of an idea, but was in Assassin's Creed 2, because you go oh, to Venice in that, yes. and that's a really good, I, well, I think is a really good reincarnation of Venice during Renaissance era. And so that was good fun. So I think that's probably my first proper understanding of the city. But I have okay. since been as well. So f- from then, that was my better understanding of the city. <laughs> Your Venice credentials are certainly better than mine. Definitely. Yeah, yeah, a, a little bit, a little bit. <laughs> um, but anyway, just to give a little bit of a sense of um, sort of geography, which we've already told you we are shit at, but I'm going to try a little bit. Unlike um, many of the other, in fact, every other city that we've spoken about, this city is built on not one, but two rivers, the Po and the Piave. So Mm. it's where they both meet, which is why you've got a big fuck-off lagoon, because there's so much water draining out of the Alps, down the Po and the Piave, and then out into the... Baghdad had... Oh, no, Baghdad had another river nearby it. It had the main one that was... Yeah, yeah, the Tigris and the Euphrates. Yeah, the Euphrates was a bit further away. It was just a close-by river, as opposed to this, which is built on top of where the rivers the both rivers come out exactly yeah um now um as patrick mentioned uh the assassin's creed sort of idea about venice um if you've played it or if you haven't played it it's it's based on the 14th sort of 14th through to the sort of 15th century venice Mm. it's right at the zenith of venice's power because in this time period um it was one of the richest city states on the continent and was the gateway and hub of wares coming from the Near East and the Silk Road beyond. The Silk Road was the mercantile connection between the Far East and Europe, which is yeah. kind of loads yeah. of trails, if you didn't know. Um, <laughs> and so, yeah, so it was a, it was a place of, of immense wealth in that time period. But by the time that we get to where we're talking about today, um, the city has been in a sort of steady decline for the best part of like two centuries. But it's kind of a funny thing because it's it's not so much, uh, it's not sort of like crumbling. It's not mm. like it's it's not like yeah, falling yeah, into yeah. thing. It's just becoming less <laughs> It's not quite sinking, which it is nowadays, but... <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, because at its height, the Venetian Republic had a colonial empire that included most of the eastern Adriatic coastline, which is sort of Croatia... Albania and uh, Macedonia and Bosnia and Herzegovina, that sort of area. Mm. Um, it had power there and in Greece and the islands of Crete and Cyprus. So it had a huge colonial empire. It's but really actually, remarkable for just being a city-state. Like, it's, yeah. it's got such a far reach. I mean, it is all very much, you know, along coastlines, which is their bread and butter being built on a lagoon. But it's it's remarkable. You know, most empires come out of large nations that just grow and grow. Whereas these guys were like, nah, fuck it, we'll have an empire as well. Well, quite, yeah. And um, at the heart of that, uh, of the power structure there, as as Patrick mentioned last week, and I'll just remind you, it was ruled by the elected ruler called the Doge. And the Doge, uh, from what I could tell by this time period anyway, uh, was chosen from one of the 12 ruling families of the city. So there were 12 mm. merch, mercantile um, sort of, pluto- this was like a plutocracy where yeah. very wealthy merchant clans almost monopolized all the power in the city and its hinterland. So exactly, it, yeah. although you are elected as Doge, you're coming from one of these 12 families. It's it's very like uh, the, the Patsy episode, which we did, which was based in Florence uh, in our first series um, of the Cloak and Dagger podcast. It's, you know, it's these very wealthy families who are part of the electorate as opposed to the normal people like me and you. It's yeah. still the wealthy picking <laughs> who of the other wealthy should be in charge of this wealthy city. Exactly. Um, so, uh, as I said, it was kind of in two centuries of decline by the time you get to the 18th century. But again, this wasn't really the fault of Venice. The 17th century, so the previous 100 years, saw a massive transfer of power and wealth from the southern European powers of places like Spain, Greece, and the Italian states towards northern European nations like the UK, Sweden, and the Dutch Republic. And mainly that was down to their rapid industrialization, uh, amongst other things. Uh, I see. Um, but yeah, so because of that, uh, Venice was just becoming less important, a little bit like Alexandria was in that interim period when it wasn't, when it was part of the Ottoman Empire, 
but wasn't mm. the center of the power structure. So anyway, it was still, but the thing is actually, it, oddly enough, although the city was becoming less relevant, it actually, if anything, bolstered the actual city itself because all of those wealthy merchant clans are no longer focused on looking out at a colonial empire which is stretches across the Mediterranean. All of that wealth still ah. exists, but it's all in the fucking city. So wow. that's why there's such a such a glorious city in the middle. Do you see? Mm. They kind of focus inwards and it all all the money flows to one point and they just start spending their money in improving their city, which is not what happens to lots of other empires across the world where they're trying to expand out and just, you know, the people at the top want as much power as possible. They were like, now let's just make our city nice. Love yeah. it. I like that. Exactly. So now that we've established the sort of where where the sort of city of venice is at this time period in terms of its sort of decline but actually looking nice um looking pretty mm. in its sort of middle age um we will begin the walkthrough which today will be taken through the streets by a woman named maddalena cellini lovely yeah so let's do it She is going to start her walk on the 31st of October, 1756. Okay. Now that is Halloween or All Hallows Night in the northern, well, in the Christian calendar. But actually, yeah. I looked this up. And uh, although nowadays Halloween is celebrated in Venice, back then it was actually much more traditional to celebrate it on the 1st and 2nd of November. And they didn't trick or treat or anything like that. They had sort of other. <laughs> They're things not dressing going up on. and yeah. <laughs> yeah. So actually, it was. Weird. It, so they just yeah. picked a different date. They just went, yeah, that's that's our one. Well, I don't know whether or not we've just fucked it up. Maybe the first like is it. All Hallows Eve, rather than yeah, than the thirty first. Anyway, who fucking cares? The point <laughs> is, it, this is happening on Halloween, seventeen fifty six. Okay. Um, in the evening. So, as I mentioned, Maddalena Cellini is our, is our guide, and she is going to step out from her lodgings into the early autumnal air with a distinct chill on the breeze. It is early evening, and the mists are descending on All Hallows' Eve. Because of the, na the nature of Venice being on a lagoon, you'd get this mist that would descend. Right. A lot like Tokyo's mist, which I spoke yeah. about. Yeah, so not, Tokyo, not so. ghosts. Not ghosts, spirits. although who knows, maybe. Yeah. yeah. That's what was happening in, in uh, Tokyo. Exactly. Spirits flying around, so there were. It, I'm already getting quite spooky. <laughs> um, do you mean spooked or spooky? Are you feeling spooky, Patrick? I'm feeling... I'm feeling a bit both, spooked and spooky. <laughs> so, uh, so Cellini, sorry, Maddalena, is met uh, outside of her lodgings by a big man dressed in the blue and yellow livery uniform of one of her patrons, Antonio Contarini. Okay. And he introduces himself and politely follows Madalena at a short distance as she makes her way towards her rendezvous with his master. So Ooh. basically, Madalena Cellini is one of the Venetian, infamous Venetian courtesans. Who ah, I see. Have, if you don't know what a courtesan is, um, a courtesan that is... It's quite hard to explain. They are they are not prostitutes, but mm. they are also considered prostitutes by people who don't like them. If you see what yes. I mean, yes, um, isn't it they similar kind to be... of to Japanese geishas? It's yes. kind of more than just. It, it's not just sex. It's kind of they are they they are good company, and they are elegant members of society. Although they are kind of paid for their work to be they kind, are. kind of companions yeah but they tend to also be of noble birth and uh maddalena cellini is no exception to that they also uh would be very lots of them were very accomplished poets and and story writers authors of their day and they were also accomplished musicians and political wow. speakers and fashionistas as well so they they were there were so many they were so much more than what mm. they are they are classified as by ignorant people i suppose yeah um so she is one of these uh, courtesans and she is going to see one of her patrons antonio contarini at his palazzo 
Madalena um, is wearing a silk mantua dress made from the finest burnished orange silk. The dress did not require a corset to be worn, which was like me- most uh, most dresses at the time. Um, mm. And it was arranged with a bow located in the center of the lower back. You might have seen them. They're sort of these sort of... Can you imagine a yeah. dress with like a big bow on the back of it? Yeah, sort of yeah, Bridgerton yeah. Bridgerton vibes. But, Very uh, Bridgerton vibes, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But orange, um, I love that. Yeah. And yeah. and probably with some sort of uh, pattern woven into it, which showed her heraldry, because that was something Ooh, they liked to do. Oh, that's so cool. So not yeah. just like a not just like a badge on her breast or anything. It's like woven no, into left, the design. We've left oh, those times cool. behind. It's very like chic. Yeah, it is, isn't it? So over the top of this beautiful burnished orange dress, she is wearing a short midnight blue jacket with large silver buttons embossed with the winged lions of the city's crest on it. Ah, oh, dope. This sounds like something people nowadays would wear to the Met Gala. Like a blue jacket over an orange, like it's really kind of classy. I mean, I'm I'm probably imagining it in a more of a modern cut than it would have been back <laughs> then. But that's yeah. so that's so like elegant and nice. And it, is this is this towards night? I'm imagining this at night. I don't know. It why, is. But... Yeah, it's an early oh, evening yeah. uh, setting. The mists have descended on Venice. Oh, of course, of course. So course, it's the yeah, end yeah. of the day. Um, and as she's so as she starts her walk, she walks down towards her destination which is the Palazzo Contarini del Bovolo uh, which is where Contarini family clan the Contarinis are one of the 12 families oh, of okay. Venice to, in order to get there though she must cross the usually crowded Piazza de San Marco or St Mark's Square looking with. up perhaps at uh, <laughs> St Theodore with his crocodile yeah, and his crocodile and possibly thinking. saying a prayer towards uh, what she assumed was St. Mark's remains, but which we know is Alexander the Great's remains. <laughs> yeah, who just takes it like a chad anyway. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> slight spoilers for last week's episode if you haven't listened to it. but <laughs> Yeah. Um, but tonight is actually a little bit different because the Doge has sent out his militia to clear the square of all revelers because important envoys from the Greek cities are making their entrance to the city. And the Doge wants nothing to go wrong. So it kicks out all the drunk revelers. I mean, yeah. it's quite nice. It's it, it it's like uh, when if you go if you go there. Sorry, I'm bragging about the fact I've been there, but it is a pain. The fact that you know this place is full of tourists, and obviously I was a tourist there, so I can't complain too much. But it's you know, I mean, going to the to the Piazza di San Marco would be amazing if it was empty. And I guess that's you really want to show off. So you yeah. can really get a, an idea of the architecture there so you clear it out. Quite. Oh, I should be friends with a doge. <laughs> <laughs> They're not still going, are they? No, no, I think Napoleon no. kicked them out. <laughs> oh, yeah, of course. Yeah, so yeah. She, but the thing is that Madalena has no problem getting past the militia cordon because she actually knows the captain of the guard. And so just by showing her face, she is like the, the militia's part so that she can go through. So she can make she's her not, way across to the other side. She's not part of the rabble, so they let, they let her through. She's she's an important person. Exactly. And mm. as she begins her to, to begin her final leg of her journey, she actually has to get a gondola because when in Venice, why not? Yes. And also, I couldn't not include a gondola in the story. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, even I did, and they weren't invented. I just mentioned them. But yeah, classic yeah. gondolas. As she relaxes into her seat she notices that they are passing underneath the dreaded prison called the Leds in the Doge's mm. Palace, which is above, it's kind of quite high up on near the, the roof of the Doge's Palace. Okay. And she, she shudders when she thinks about those who are suffering within. And for one person in particular, she mouths a silent prayer. Oh, suspicious. A prayer to St. Mark, who no, might be to, Alexander the Great. <laughs> or <laughs> no, just, no, no, no. Ju- just in a general prayer, yeah, yeah. A general prayer, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So the, the gondola finally slips into the mooring beside the Palazzo Contarini, and Madalena's chaperone jumps out onto the dockside and offers his hand to help her back onto dry land. After a mere moment to rearrange her dress, Madalena follows the guard into the party. But just as she is about to enter, she thinks that she hears a strange sound, possibly the sound of feet on roof tiles. Probably nothing, but what was that? Could it have been something else? Hmm. Well, 
must have been the wind or something like that. Must have been <laughs> the wind on this All Hallows Eve. And then she enters oh, the party God. and forgets what she that momentary moment when something sure. was happening very close by. <gasps> dun dun dun. So yeah, that's the end of the walkthrough. I hope well, you enjoyed colour me intrigued. Ooh. <laughs> colour me in Mantua dresses. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So in order to explain what, what uh, Maddalena Cellini might have heard on All Hallows' Eve in 1756, okay. we're going to have to go back. I'm going to take you back to the previous July 26th, 1755. Right. So this is yeah, a whole year and a half earlier. Because uh, to, to the law courts in the middle of Venice, just off the Doge's Palace, just to the sort of west of them, um, because a man has been arrested and shoved into the dock a man who is very good looking has a real brash bravado to him and he's aged about 30 years old at this moment mm -hmm. in time um and without a trial and without even knowing the sentencing he is dragged away from the court and locked up in the lee in the leads prison this dreaded prison which uh, is in the Doge's Palace. And the reason it's called the Leds Prison is because it has a lead roof. And what's so awful about that, you might ask? Well, basically, in the summer, the lead would become so hot under the sun that it would turn the prison into basically an oven. And then in the oh. winter, in the winter, it would go ice cold as well. So then it would turn into a freezer. So it's like a fucking... Wow. It was an awful... It was like... It wasn't place. no insulation. It was a massive conductor of heat. So whatever temperature it was outside, you just burnt through or froze through. Yeah, Ugh, that's exactly awful. God, imagine, prisons are awful. Imagine not knowing, like how how long you're going to prison for. You, yeah, you, oh, for what reason? In there. Yeah, God, so, brutal. What uh, his actual this man who I'm I've been trying to keep away from the uh, <laughs> from saying his name uh, because right, I know that. Sure. Everyone's going to know it. Um, okay. But the man in question who's just been dragged off for an unknown crime was a man named Giacomo Girolamo Casanova. <gasps> no way. I bet Casanova. Means, yes, the Casanova. The Casanova. And wow. he is the person we'll be speaking about in our episode today. And oh, interesting. Yeah. So uh, for those of you who, th those keen-eared listeners uh, who remember that uh, Madalena gave a silent prayer as she came underneath the, le the le Leds prison, that was for mm -hmm. her ex-lover, Casanova, who had been <gasps> Scandalous. Up. Yes. Well, wow. if you know anything about Casanova, scandal follows him wherever he went. And <laughs> today uh, we will be investigating exactly what sort of scandal, scandalous sort of person he was so yes yeah, settle in listener this is going to be a good one cool now actually it's quite funny i was looking up in the research for casanova i was reading quite a few there's quite there's a lot to read up on he actually wrote his memoirs later in life so you can oh, really? have full access to them which is fantastic um, but of course you have to take it with a pinch of salt because he is writing about himself and he's a yeah. massive egotist so half yeah, the stuff yeah, you yeah. read is backed up but the other half is a bit more tricky to to find. I, don't, I, I really don't know much about it. My name is a guy, and I know it's just it, it's more his name has just carried on as you, it's now a descriptor. It's an adjective to a type of guy, a, a yeah. Casanova type, yeah. exactly like a Lothario or a Don Juan. It's kind of that kind of thing, isn't it? Who's Lothario? I don't know who Lothario is, but a Lothario oh. is someone who is a womanizer, for want of really? a better word. Yeah. Mm. Sounds yeah. musketeersy, doesn't it, Lothario? It does. But what I was yeah. going to say was, throughout all the research that I looked into this guy, I read lots of articles on him, um, the best line I found was in a stuffy old tome, which actually obviously <laughs> must have been quite recent, because <laughs> the best line from it was, Casanova was, in a lot of ways, a Kardashian. <laughs> That's literally wow. what he wrote. <laughs> In the way, who's this guy writing it? A historian or? Yeah, it's a historian. It's a historian writing it. Wow, I, go I him. Like, Keeping up yeah. with the pop culture. I know, right? Anyway, well, so, you know, pop culture is just modern history. 
kind of. It is. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so let's let me take you back to the beginning of Casanova's story. Give you a little bit of context before we okay. follow the poor bastard up to the, the Leds prison. Um, yeah. So he was a remarkable man. You can say what you like about him in terms of his questionable character, but he did do a lot. He didn't have a boring life. And in mm. fact, on his uh, his final line of his first uh, autobiography that he wrote, he wrote, I can say Vixie, which means I have lived. So his last ending to his autobiography was I have lived. Because wow, he, it's it like meant he got around. Frank Sinatra, I did it my way. <laughs> it, yeah, exactly. It's like this grand send-off, yeah. But actually, he actually started life... Um, a lot less uh, nice part of well, he was still in. He was a Venice boy. He was Venice born and bred. Uh, his mm-hmm. parents uh, were quite interesting. Uh, it was Gaetano Casanova was his father, and he was a dancer. And his mother was Zanetta Farusi, who was an actor. So he was born wow. into a play, a fairly modest family, um, mm. but who had very eclectic. Imagine the talent. Of those two, to yeah, a lot, of, out of it. a lot of character in that family, a lot of like sort of flamboyance, and you know, he was born to be, you know, smooth talking, really, and smooth exactly. moving. Yeah, yeah. Um, he actually he was the oldest of six, uh, and was mainly raised by his maternal grandmother because his mother died. No, his father died when he was eight, and his mother went on tour to France to as an actor to uh mm. to perform and so she left her children behind because you can't really do acting along with six screaming children God, these fickle actors leaving their kids behind to jet with set around the grandma. world yeah, I yeah. Know. <laughs> but uh so giacomo actually grew up as quite a gawky child he wasn't very uh he was considered slow by his mm. by his tutors and he was also prone to nosebleeds which is quite interesting i always think so he had certain ailments which he he didn't he didn't start life. He didn't come out of the mm. womb with jazz hands. Let's put it that way. No, 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 um, no. Or like a cool smolder. Like he was a bit of a uh, a weedy little kid, sickly. Exactly. Uh, mm. You might have remembered from last week, listener, that uh, the foundation story, the foundation myth or slash story of uh, Venice was that an old Mi- woman myth. Yeah. was involved uh, with the with the vanquishing of Pepin, King Pepin of, of the Franks army. Mm-hmm. Well, this story also has an old wizened witch. As he, as wow, Venice like their old wizened women, don't they? <laughs> they do, yes. Um, so apparently when he was eight years old, his, his grandmother was quite worried about all these nosebleeds and sought out mystical help for his condition. Love she, it. She ferried him across the, uh, through the Venetian canals to the island of Murano, where a witch treated him for this for this uh for the nosebleeds and also wow. his gawky nature apparently they they thought they'd just get everything <laughs> done at once what were they hoping would happen like they'd cast a spell and it'd be like captain america comes out well it, honestly he's obviously writing his own myth here but i still want to tell the story so he mm, mm. she she gives him this old woman gives him this unduent fluid to drink and he drinks right. it all down and uh later that night a dazzling woman climbed down the chimney and spoke to him in words he could not understand before kissing him and leaving the house. Wow. So he took some pretty strong hallucinogenics, <laughs> sounds like. Well, apparently it worked. Apparently he, nice. he stopped getting nosebleeds. Now, I've... He stopped getting thinking. nosebleeds. So it wasn't yeah. he just became cooler. He, d- he had a physiological change happen to him. Well, it's amazing wow. what a kiss can do. No, but... I do wonder, (laughs) I I thought we'd get into this later, but I'm going to have to bring it up now. The thing about Casanova is that people Mm -hmm. think he's this wonderful guy. He was brilliant and sort of, you know, he slept around. He apparently slept with over 120 women and most of them were married or, you know, unavailable. Let's put it that way. Yeah, yeah, Um, yeah. But actually, I and I then so I read all of those, and there's so much on him being this sort of this guy, you know, this sort of handsome bravado mm. guy who's just amazing but i then looked into the revisionist history and it is alarming how much and we'll get into this later that there's a real dark character to to uh, the man so of course it's a tricky one um i mean yeah womanizing natures and 
typically are hiding a much darker secret underneath or like a, a, a much more tragic soul. I think certainly nowadays we're starting to see that uh, in a lot more of the heroes we look at. So it's it's nice to see the revisionist history is targeting Casanova as well. Oh, absolutely. And God, he will fall very far in your estimation by the time we finish this. But just at this point, I've just had a thought. This sort of, this story he tells of this woman coming down a chimney, speaking to him words he couldn't understand and kissing him. This was all happening when he was the age of eight years old, right? Right. I'm just starting to wonder whether he was sexually manipulated by a woman. Molested, yeah. When he didn't have... So maybe that's what started it all, because he says that after this moment, he then was impassioned towards the feminine sex. That's how he puts it. Mm. And if he's... I mean, you know, he says it's this dazzling woman... But it might have been someone he may have been frightened of. And actually, childhood trauma can sometimes... I mean, this is... I'm probably pushing the bar out in a kind of psychological understanding. But I, my vague understanding is, you know, psychological trauma can uh, come back in a huge number of different ways. And I imagine it could be possible that something happened to him when he was a young child. And in order to feel in control again he then pursued a very womanizing, controlling lifestyle. So he would never again feel as vulnerable as he did. That's really interesting. And that that's, I mean, that makes this story kind of, as always, there's no real bad people. It's bad people are caused by bad actions caused to them by other bad people. Yeah. Like it's, it, it's a, it's a vicious cycle. That's it really is. interesting. So that yeah, just yeah. came into my head. So I thought I'd just share that part, but um, just to quickly do an, a quick, God, it's so difficult to know what to include in, in the story of Casanova because mm. he wrote 12 volumes for his autobiography. <laughs> on himself. With his Jesus. Ego. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, we do like focusing on egomaniacs like him, Alexander the Great, all these maniacs who are just so obsessed with themselves. Very true. So he entered, although the bits I'm telling you are backed up. So he entered right. the University of Padua, which is just down the road from Venice, um, at the age of just 12, which actually, although sounds ridiculous, was quite common. He, he wasn't, right. yeah, he yeah. wasn't a genius. Uh, and he graduated at 17 with a law degree. So, yeah, fair play. He's got a brain on yeah. it. Um, Pretty good job, yeah. yeah. He, he, the, but the only way he managed to get there was through a patron who was a friend of his, well, oh, I say friend, air quotes, friend of his mother's, uh, Zanetta Ferrisi. Right. So, um, slash lover. It looks like the patron, his first patron, was actually the lover of his mum. Um, and right. paid, basically, for his education. Definitely just uh, his mother's lover, not any possibility his real father or anything like that? There is a suggestion that he, that mm. quite right, yes, that Gaetano Casanova might have been cuckolded by his wife. Um, ah. and, and he might have been, but he would love that because then he would have been the, da- the, the son of a lord, which is what he loves. It's oh, all myth-making. And a womanizing lord as well. Yeah, but his patron hoped that he would take his law degree and become an ecclesiastical lawyer. Well, fat chance of that, because Casanova yeah. is not known for his ecclesiastical law, law-abiding mm, citizens. Mm. Um, if you become an ecclesiastical lawyer, do you have to also be kind of priestly, I imagine? Or is it just a law degree? But even then, he's still not the right person for the job. I'm fairly sure you had to become a priest to become an ecclesiastical lawyer. I'm not sure. Yeah. That's something that so, I don't know. Celibacy is not in his rule book at the moment. Absolutely not. Um, and as I say, all the way through his his time, from as early as twelve years old, he is sexually active, as far as we can tell. Um, Which is so- quite that. I mean, obviously, people living back in the past would be exposed to things that our kids wouldn't be. But I'm, and this is really pushing. I don't have any experience. You know, I don't have any authority on this. But it feels like being sexually active at that age would be triggered by something people aren't born kids don't you know just suddenly become that way especially if it started at the age of eight presumably well, before he puberty that's the yeah. thing i think at the age of eight it's unnatural it's very unusual by 12 yeah. it's more natural yes in, yeah, uh, yeah for this time period for this time period i'm not talking now obviously. yeah 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 um yeah he so- might have peers around him pressuring him into be sexually active and so it's yeah the, the- more commonplace i guess after he leaves university he kind of bounces all over the place. I mean, it's it's quite hard to follow. <laughs> At one point, yeah. um, his grandmother dies and he enters a seminary. 
to join up to the church because he probably feels remorse about you know his sort of misgivings about being sexually active and everything maybe i'm not sure there's a holy um, awakening of some kind but quite quickly he becomes uh in debtor's prison because he can't pay off his debts because <laughs> he's so poor because he doesn't have anything he's from the very bottom this is the thing about casanova he is mm. very much a rags to riches back to rags kind of guy um mm. uh he then gets sort of placed within a bishop's household and he finds employment as a scribe for a cardinal cardinal in Rome. Uh, he meets the Pope uh, at the time oh. and uh, he asks for a dispensation to read the forbidden books, which uh, yeah. are the ones which you're not meant to read, obviously. Um, and oh, he, The forbidden he section of the library. And he, char- he, char- <laughs> yeah, he charms the Pope who gives him the dispensation. So that's clearly he was a charming guy. Um, but very yeah. quickly, smooth talker. Yeah, yeah. But quite quickly, though, it becomes clear that the ecclesiastical ways are not for him, because he actually gets he becomes a scapegoat for a scandal involving a local star-crossed lovers story, uh, which a cardinal dismisses as nothing. But another cardinal, the cardinal he's worked for, dismisses it. But the, another cardinal mm. pinches Casanova and says, "No, it's him," uh, and so ah. he gets thrown out of the church like that just like that but he would have left anyway wow. i mean he was already yeah. he was barely barely a priest you know i suppose he, it was only a matter of time for him to be caught doing yeah. something with the person he shouldn't be exactly um so in search of a new profession he he just decides one day to buy a commission and become a an army officer for the republic of venice so why not yeah you know, so, he's, so he's tried he, the church now you try the military. Those exactly. are the two main employers at this time. Exactly. Uh, but what I love about this is he, he he says this. This is from his memoirs. He goes, I decided to dress as a soldier. I inquire for a good tailor. He brings me everything I need to impersonate a follower of Mars. My uniform <laughs> was white with a blue vest, a shoulder knot of silver and gold. I bought a long sword and with my handsome cane in hand, a trim hat with a black cockade, with my hair cut in side whiskers and a long false pigtail. I set forth to impress the whole city. <laughs> oh my God, I love that. He, I mean, dress for the job you want, but I love he's also recording that it's kind of a bit bollocks. Yeah. Did you say he had a fake ponytail? He did have a fake ponytail, yeah. Just ridiculous. He's just like, right, I want to become a soldier. I need to be dressed right. That's obviously the first part of this journey. Not high, not getting, not enlisting, not starting basic basic training or having any kind of combat experience. I need to look the part. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So then um, he joins up, but for a very short amount of time, he clearly <laughs> finds his duties quite boring. So he starts to yeah. play. Uh, he starts to gamble within the army and eventually gets found out and and he decides to resign from his, oh, yeah, his yeah, commission. Yeah, of um, so at the age of 21, he's already been a priest, a scribe, uh, and also a, an officer in the Republic's army. And now he sets out to become a professional gambler, which he's actually quite good at doing. Oddly a professional enough. gambler? They had those back then. Yeah, um, because Venice at the time was a place of, uh, which I'll come to, Venice was a place of sort of divided loyalties. So you had the conservative mm political power of people at the top but actually there was a lot mm. of debauchery at the same time anyway uh he does this but using the money of an old benefactor because he always has these benefactors these patrons who look out for him and pay for him to just do whatever they the fuck he wants mm. um so he's he's almost a court he, he if he was a woman he would have been named a courtesan so but because right. of the way that history is taught and the way that the patriarchy was and is i suppose um back then you would never consider a man necessarily to be a courtesan. So he was, no. but he was basically a kept man, basically. So he's he being was, supported to live his own life as opposed to being property of, of another man. Yeah. This yeah. bizarre, ridiculous way that people used to, and as you say, still look at the world. But that's, uh, so it's interesting. I love the fact that, yeah, the, the, the attention to detail about the his clothing sounded very like uh, the courtesan we heard from in the walkthrough, you know. Clearly, exactly. you know, what you're wearing back then was so important to these people, um, which is completely fine. I think, you know, that's that's a great way to live. It really is, isn't it? Mm. Um, so although um, he is sort of running through all these different, all these different uh, professions, uh, <laughs> he 
eventually uh, he he gets in trouble. He gets in trouble a lot because he sleeps mm. around with basically anyone he can get his hands on. So mm. there's certainly a side of sex addiction here. I don't know enough about it for, to really talk about it. So we're not going to go too mm. d- deep dive into that. But basically, both of his patrons that he has throughout his life, he sleeps with their nieces, their daughters, their sisters, like fucking any female person with a vagina who mm. is of age uh he will just go there and these patrons don't mind or well it, so he i mean they continue to to pay him mm. so it's just so weird i just don't understand it's so strange yeah yeah i mean i yeah. guess maybe it's a weirdly possibly slightly more liberal city in terms of sex and stuff like that like but it shouldn't be because it's still deeply Catholic. And I think at any time, uh, you wouldn't want to be, you know, so much supporting the guy who's sleeping with every other woman in your life. No, you really wouldn't. Um, but eventually, as I say, uh, his sort of streak catches up with him and he pisses off the wrong person. Um, mm-hmm. And so he then gets arrested on the 26th of July, 1755, at the age of 30. So he's been sleeping around for like two decades just about and he's been sleeps with the wrong mistress yeah so i i found what his sentence actually was so let me read it so it says but this is something that he didn't know at the time because he was dragged away before the sentencing but you've got it great yeah yeah yeah, because they they recorded it so it says the tribunal having taken cognizance of the grave faults committed by g casanova primarily in public outrages against the holy religion their excellencies have caused him to be arrested and imprisoned under the leads. Wow. So, so there's really not a lot there. They're like, he he insulted our, he like did actions that would be an insult to our religion, so we've arrested him. There's no more information about the, the specific crimes, any specific sentencing. Nope. It's just, oh, that's that's a really crap judgment because it's just, it's just like, we don't like this guy. So yeah. we're formally throwing him in jail. Exactly. Um, so he was thrown into jail and he was put into the leads on the 12th of September, 1756. So okay. our walkthrough was the 31st of October, 1756. So just right. remember that. Um, so this is about a month and a half before, six weeks yeah. before. Um, and his, his actual sentence was five years imprisonment. So it was a fairly decent time like to wow. be in the leads as well. Just now, for sleeping around a bit. Well, for sleeping around, he was also done for... Um, the, one of his patrons was a uh, a Kabbalist, which is someone who, who reads the dark arts as an alchemist. He was strongly suspected of being an alchemist and of spying for the enemies of Venice. And basically any charge you can think of, he was charged with. Alongside. It sounds... Yeah, it sounds a bit like when we've looked at... And it, it's interesting that you, yeah, you tie them to... Uh, tie him to the way some women are treated in history. But, you know, like Catherine de' Medici, we covered her a bit and how they kind of just targeted her and placed blame for a bunch of black arts that was no evidence for or anything like that. And they just found ways to... Or do you think he actually was... Oh, no, no, no. Maybe he was older? totally in on all of that stuff. So unlike oh, really? <laughs> poor women who were taken on trumped-up charges, he was fucking guilty of every single one. And he's quite proud of it. As well, as he said, wow. he he says at the end of his life, I can say, Vixie, I have lived. So, so he, he just wouldn't say no to anything. So no. anyone, any strange witch or wizard who offered him a good time, if you cast these spells, he'd be like, yeah, fuck it, I'll, he, I'm, I'm game for anything. He includes the mystic witch story in his first part of his mm. autobiography. Like he, his he, origin story is born of witchcraft. Yeah. Now, listen, the Leds uh, was a prison of seven cells, which was on the top floor of the east wing of the Doge's palace. And it was reserved, mm-hmm. actually, for prisoners of higher status, as well as certain types of offenders, such as political prisoners, defrocked or libertine priests, which we'll come back to, and mm-hmm. usurers, which are like loan sharks. And and it was named because, of, as I said, because it's of the lead plates covering the palace roof. Right. So that's a weird, like, uh, like status, like approval. Like he'd come up in the world because he was being thrown in the nicest bit of the prison, yeah. like from where he was born, where he'd be thrown into the worst bit of the prison. He's now come up into the world so much that when he's arrested, he goes to the nice bit. 
And I imagine his patrons had something to do with that. Ah, because I see. the patrons yeah, yeah. were of that ruling class. So they would They want wanted to make sure he to was still sure looked fine. after even when he's in prison, yeah. Yeah. Um so he was he was taken from the court straight up to this east wing and thrown into solita- solitary confinement with clothing, a pallet bed, a table, an armchair, and he <laughs> he's quoted as calling it the worst of all the cells. <laughs> <laughs> wow geez so yeah not, but he's, <laughs> not the best foresight yeah yeah wow to, to be fair he does go on to say that um there was it was in perpetual darkness and the summer heat would bring millions of fleas so you can just imagine you're in the dark Ooh, okay that's pretty brutal you know um but he was soon housed after the first part uh with a series of cellmates so he'd have one cellmate with him so there'd be two mm-hmm. to a cell and after um, a, a lot of uh, a lot of appeals to one of his uh, major patrons, a man called Count Bragadin, um, he was given warm winter bedding and a, a monthly stipend for books and better food. So it wasn't mm. all that bad. This again is yeah. this is the time period. This is where you could bribe your way. You could do the same with the Tower of London all the way through history. Yeah, 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 um, yeah. But he was—he did not want to stay put. This is a guy who you can't track down. He doesn't ever have a very long relationship with anyone. So trying to cage you can't put him in a like box. This, yeah, yeah, he yeah, really can't. Um, I'm surprised if he is even in the grave where he's meant to have been. Although we don't know where that is, by the way. So maybe he's wow. still around sleeping around with all the other graves. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, but during he was given exercise walks every day around the sort of prison garret. And whilst he was going round, he found, according, this is all coming from him, um, a piece of black marble and an iron bar, which he smuggles back to his cell. And okay. He, so he's found this in the basically the prison yard. And I don't know how he found <laughs> an this. An iron bar and no one noticed it. Yeah. I have no idea. Jeez. But this is, this, okay. is, this is corroborated that he did find this iron bar. And what he does okay. when he gets back to his cell is he hides it in his armchair. So maybe in one of the arms, I imagine. Yeah, He's yeah. He just sort of put it in there. Um, and uh, one day, his usual cellmate was actually transferred, and he was temporarily alone. Now, of course, he doesn't <sighs> know how long he's going to be on his own for. You know, because he oh, doesn't even fucking he know still how has no idea what He has no idea what his sentence was. No. Um, wow. So it turns out he has two weeks alone. And he wastes absolutely no time in sharpening the bar into a spike on the marble stone that he's picked up. Wow. So he's turning this metal rod. He needs to get out. He needs to escape. I, yeah. You know. So what he starts to do is he begins to gouge through the wooden floorboards underneath his bed. Because oh he, my God. he knew that his cell was directly above the Inquisitor's chamber. So basically the main guy who runs the prison. Oh my God. Yeah. And he thinks this is a good place to escape to. Well, where else is he going to go? He has no I suppose option. he's not going to scrape through stone walls. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And also it's high up. It's above. You can't, like, there's just no way you can get out Yeah, yeah. He's not sure shanking his way and going through the pipes. No. So just yeah. three days before. So he's managed to cut through most of it, right? And he's got three days before he plans to escape during a festival that's going to come on uh, when no officials would be in the chamber below. Uh, Casanova is unexpectedly moved to a larger, lighter cell with a view. Oh, no. And apparently he protested (laughs) that he was perfectly happy where he was. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that's super suspicious. They go, we've got you with a view. There's no freeze. It's much nicer. (laughs) It's just like... No, I, I I was really getting to know myself. I was really comfortable there. Can you please take me back to that fucking place? <laughs> and also, of course, the chair. The armchair doesn't come with him. So that... Oh, he his... couldn't say, oh, I really enjoyed that armchair. Can you can you bring the armchair with you? <laughs> yeah, please. <laughs> Again, super suspicious. I know. So um, in his new cell, he basically falls into a depression. Because he, oh, he yeah. spent all this time trying... He's to so close. And he he says that he fell into a, uh, a ma- into a man in a stupor, motionless as a statue. I felt I, that I had nothing to hope for, and the only relief left to me was to not think of the future. So he's clearly getting very low, right? Mm. Um, but finally, he manages to crawl out of his depression and begins to plan his next escape plan. 
and because <laughs> he can't keep a good man down. Um, no, despite his he's got... questionable attitude. Yeah, um, I, li- I, li- I like his tenacity. Yeah. I like he's not. He's not. He's refusing to quit. So the reason he was moved was because a new prisoner had joined in the in the cell that he was in, and it was actually adjacent to the one he'd been moved into. And this new guy was called Father Balby. And Father Balby was a renegade priest who'd been locked up because he'd, he'd apparently been conversing with devils and talking to goats in a strange <laughs> language. I just fucking love the charges. Wow. Yeah. Um, but the thing is, Father Balby is now in possession of the armchair, which has the <gasps> spike in it. Oh, my God. And so, love that. Fa- so Father Balby uh, strikes up a friendship with the Casanova, the charming Casanova who's charmed popes and patrons alike. So wait, but uh, but they're in separate rooms. But they're I guess they see each other every now and again. You can probably see each other from the cell door. I don't know. Mm, I have no mm. idea. They might have meals or yard time together or something. So w- what uh, the Father Balby does is, for whatever reason, he passes... Um, hang on, let me get, read this right. Oh, this doesn't make sense. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, yes. So, Casanova is a charming individual, and he manages to charm a jailer. And what this jailer... He can do anything. I know, this guy, I know. He manages to convince this jailer to go back into his old cell and retrieve the spike. I forgot to mention, sorry, Father Balby is not in his old cell. He's in the adjacent cell, so he can see or probably opposite him. Um, so this jailer goes in, finds the spike, this is so risky, and placed the spike within a folio Bible, which he then carries under a heaping plate of pasta to Father Balby's cell. So they were being... So they Casanova being... convinces the jailer to bring the spike to Father... Balby. What was he called? Balo. Ba- what? Balby. Balby. To Father Balby. Yeah. Okay, sure. I don't know how he bribed him. Maybe he used his connections with the with his patron. But essentially, the priest receives with his bowl of pasta a folio Bible, and in the middle of it is this spike. So that would seem more like a threat than it would a a a, 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 a boon, a help. Yeah. But the, what why what I was thinking is why didn't he get it sent to himself? Why didn't he just get him to bring yeah. it to his cell? Well, I'll tell you for why, Casanova. Mm-hmm. I think they knew he was trying to escape in that other cell because his new cellmate was a rat. He was a he was put there on purpose. He was a plant. Wow. Yeah, okay. He was a plant. So, what he does is he gets his mate, um, the priest, uh, Father Balby, um, to basically make a hole in his ceiling of his cell, Father Balby's cell, with the mm-hmm. spike, climbed across to Casanova's cell, made a hole uh. in the ceiling there. And then he then grabs Casanova. So you can just imagine it. The priest is sort of tearing away mm. on All Hallows' Eve. And, and at, but by this point, Casanova had um, basically scared and terrorized his, his new cellmate into silence. So he was like, wow. I can ruin so you. Not, you think you're safe in Not here, just a silver not. tongue. He can intimidate as well. Exactly. Um, and he, he, Casanova lifts himself through the ceiling onto the sort of like rafters in between the sort of the ceiling oh, see. Of the so it's not, and the legs. He hasn't gone into a separate room. Cause, oh, because at the top, of course. Yeah. So they can climb into the kind of rafter attic space. And, and now I've got to let Casanova take over from here. So this is what he said. Okay. I got out the first and Father Balbi followed me. Sorodachi, who had come as far as the opening, had orders to put the plate of lead back in its place. Now, Sorodachi is another accomplice but uh, he didn't come all the way because someone had to close the lid of the roof to, so that it looked wow. like he hadn't So Casanova, Casanova convinced the guy to help them escape, but not escape himself. Exactly. Keeping on my hands and knees and grasping my pike firmly, I pushed it obliquely between the joining of the plates of lead. And then holding the side of the plate which I had lifted, I succeeded in drawing myself up to the summit of the roof. The monk, Father Balby, had taken hold mm-hmm. of my waistband to follow me, and thus I was like a beast of <laughs> burden who was to carry and draw along at the same time. 
and this oh on my a God. steep and slippery roof in the middle of the night. <laughs> so he was just carrying the monk, the priest behind him, lifting him out. God, he's got to be tough. Yeah, or he this does. is maybe a little bit embellished, but I, I, I'm going with it. But no, he did do this. He did this. He he got, gets oh, out really? onto the leads. Yeah, he gets out onto the top of the leads, one of the most infamous prisons in Italy, and starts oh. running across the roof tiles, which is what Cellini, Madalena Cellini hears um, across ah. the slippery, slippery roof. So it's good job a, she prayed for him. I exactly. Um, there was a heavy fog, apparently, swirling around the Doge's palace. So that makes for a really great atmosphere. Um, mm. And they realized that the drop to the nearby canal was far too high. So Casanova prized open a grate over a window, which was um, so they could break through to gain entry into the palace of the Doge. <laughs> wow. God. Um, they found a, a long ladder on the roof, which is quite handy. And with the additional use of a bedsheet rope literally tying ropes of bed sheets together they lowered themselves into the room which was about 25 feet below the roof 25 feet is a long way to <sighs> hang down big room i know um wow so, and they're yeah. coming up with this on the fly i guess because there's not a planned escape they plan to escape their room yeah and then they're just winging it they're figuring it out as they go exactly um they rested then i love this they rested until morning they waited until morning. Then in the they, palace? Yeah. In this son of a Oh, my God. They, they what into. a pair of bollocks. He's just like, he just falls in this room. And it's like, it's a nice room. Where am I in a cell? How do we just chill out in here? Well, I'm sure we won't get bothered. And even if they got bothered, he could probably talk his way out of them. Well, this like is if the a thing. maid servant came in, asked why you're there, he'd just convince them that they're meant to be there, that they're guards or they're lords or they're, you know, they could probably, he could probably convince a servant that he's the doge himself. Well, quite. So what happens is he then changes his clothes. Um, they find change. They're basically in a bedroom. So they find a wardrobe and change into their uh, out of their prison clothes into whatever they find. Ah, perfect. And they, they break a small lock on an exit door and pass into the palace corridor through galleries and chambers. <sighs> and wow. you remember in the walkthrough, I said that they cleared the uh, the palazzo, sorry, the Palazzo San Marco from, sorry, the the piazza san marco for the dignitaries they're in yes. the fucking palace those greek envoys are being hosted by the doge wow as casanova and his and his cellmate run through escape the prison moving through and i guess you know a bunch so the 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 palace is full of people but they blend in it's not yeah, empty well this is the thing yes absolutely so they go downstairs to ground level but it's still quite early so it's not busy right okay yeah so what does Casanova do? He sees a guard, two guards, at the front of where he's trying to escape from. And he mm -hmm. manages to convince them that they had inadvertently been locked into the palace after an official function and and that they would just <laughs> wanted to leave now. And they fucking did it. So Wow. At, at did he say what who he was? Did he like give a give a pseudonym? Did he who, what was it, what was his character? Relate. But I love oh. the idea that he was saying that he was part of the Greek envoy uh, crew. Yeah. And he was <laughs> Maybe he like... spoke Greek and he was just pretending to be Greek. I mean, that's such well, a I great... Mean, to be fair, the guards would think that, that, that these guys are escaped prisoners. The Leds is a very different part of the palace. You know, they're not... Completely looking... different, dressed differently. It's all that kind of thing where, you know, you just have to convince people enough yeah. The, and if you've got the confidence, that's what he probably had. He went up to them. He didn't He didn't get caught and quickly made up a story. He walked straight at them, had a story in mind, and just played them. Oh, he's a genius. But you know what's even better, just to round this off? It was 6am in the morning, and how did they escape? By gondola. They leave <gasps> Venice Brilliant. on a gondola. They just nick a gondola. Genius. And they escape, literally. And Casanova... <laughs> doesn't stop running until he reaches paris literally wow. so he's he just goes and he's never is he never captured oh well that is for another time unfortunately casanova's okay. story is is long and and incredible um mm. and unbelievable possibly uh but he gets imprisoned again that, that definitely happens okay but for a different charge um and then he gets but out he, again he escapes in a gondola 
from Venice. Yeah. So he is. Uh, the, so I love how we both did stories which were actually cr- criminal offences. So bank, yeah. heist, not bank heist, uh, Saint heist, and Saint uh, heist, a libertine uh, prison escape with a with wow. a fucking Satanist priest. It's just so you yeah. can't write this. Um, God, so, yeah, well, yeah. Your one was like a really like anti-Christian. These were enemies to Christianity sneaking out in the dead of night. Whereas my one was, you know, paragons of Christianity stealing on behalf of the church. Yeah, but it's the same. Obviously, the Venetian people, you know, from their uh, founding and from the from where they came from, they were ingenuitive people. You know, they knew how they thought practically. They were smart people. They weren't tied down by old-fashioned ideals of what was right and what was wrong. They're exactly. smart cookies. I love they them. They really are. Um, yeah. The last thing that he has to say, Casanova, on this is is this: Thus did God provide me with what I needed for an escape, which was to be a wonder, if not a miracle. I admit that I am proud of it, but my <laughs> pride does not come from my having succeeded. For luck had a good deal to do with that. It comes from my having concluded the thing could be done and having the courage to undertake it. Wow. Like, it's kind of humble. He's not like not bragging about he did it. He's bragging about that only he is smart enough to have done to have thought to have done it. Yes, absolutely. Um so yes, that is our uh, is my story for the Venetian. Wow. Our final one. Uh, to talk about um i oh, would good on him in order to unfortunately round this off uh, I, I can't i can't put casanova to bed without the revisionist side of his character so i do need to mention the fact that um on closer inspection of his autobiography and regardless of what happened when he was young he certainly was not a man who worried about things such as uh, just any morals he had no morals and mm. i think that it, if he'd been now you can't judge people from different time periods in today's modern standards but with this i think it really pushes the boat too far yeah. goes over the line um for instance he purchases a girl's virginity from her own mother in one place oh god he, oh my god i mean that's sorry but that's like you know um uh the who was it the judith story we talked about wasn't the painter, her virginity was bought by no, a man who... it wasn't what bought, was it? he just raped her. And then... Oh, his, and the then the guy... Ch- the guy the, because of the loss of cost. But that, you know... Oh, that's horrible. Yeah, and that's hang really. On. Uh, I'm just going to yeah. list a few things off because otherwise uh, we'll, I don't want to spoil it too much. But a couple of decades later in St. Petersburg in Russia, he bought a 13-year-old sex slave. Um, oh, he, Jesus. He, in 1774, at age of 50, he ran into a former lover who had a nine-year-old daughter, and he writes how he he basically slept with her. And he, oh. but the worst thing of all, by his own account, he even impregnated his own daughter. What? Yeah. Oh my God. So this guy. Whilst all the things I've just told you are great, great things, which are great sort of, what's it called, copy to tell a story mm. in, you've got to see that this guy has just been written up well by himself. Yeah. And actually, oh. he he should not be re- looked on in any sort of uh, good way at all. He is a man, he, mm. is a, he was a monster, but he wrote mm. his own history. And this is a classic case of where people will write, the winners write the history. And he wrote yeah. his own legacy. So God. sorry to end it on a monstrous note, but there is two sides to every story, and this side is absolutely a side which it needs to be I taken guess it's, seriously. Yeah, he because he wrote it. I mean, it's you know very much written from the man's point of view, and he paints himself as this smooth-talking, possibly womanizing, but kind of heroic figure. When it sounds like he was a serial rapist, really, yeah. who was, I mean, and yeah, you can't judge people by today's standards, but you could judge him by the standards of that day. And clearly, Just people wanted decency. him arrested, for, you know, yeah. comment, like that wasn't okay back then. Oh, that's um, yeah. really, yeah. So it's always important to, when you're looking at uh, big, big parts of history, like Casanova is, is a sort of synonym for people who, 
you know, Casanova, everyone knows that name. As soon as I said it on this podcast, listening, mm. you probably knew who it was. But it's important to look underneath and revise the history so that you can see from the primary sources, he writes about this. This is coming from himself. But people have chosen yeah. to ignore it over the centuries. So it's just something to consider. But I hope you guys enjoyed that, regardless of that <laughs> tainted ending. But it's important, I think, to tell the, the whole story. It's of still character. it's still a fun story. It's still a daring Heavily coloured. It yeah. is still a daring escape. Uh, and it is heavily coloured by the final comments on him. But I think that's what we both really enjoyed about this series, is that it's really interesting to dive into history like this where you can examine people and events from multiple sides and really get the real truth because so much of what we're taught and what history has been taught over the years as as you said taught by the winners and taught by people who are teaching you about their own history i mean you know you can compare him talking about himself to the british empire teaching us about the british empire yeah for so many years we were seen as heroic uh, civilizing influence on the world Whereas we caused just as much damage as like, a, a you know, we were an empire of Casanovas who just destroyed and raped the world. Yeah. And it sounds like he was doing the same thing. He was this... a figure who bigged himself up and hid away the fact that what he was doing was awful and was monstrous. But this is this is the thing. So I found out about his revision. I, I, I basically bought into that original history. <laughs> yeah hook line and sinker and it was only actually today on the day of recording that i went hang on a second have you actually looked and seen if there was anything mm. else the other side of the coin and there it was and then i had to finish it like this because it's important yeah anyway absolutely listener, it's the, the, those the, those sorry i should say that those uh stories they're seductive you get drawn in and you want to believe them you want to believe uh that there were heroes and uh, great people in history who did amazing things and did nothing wrong because it's just a more enjoyable view of the world but it is bad to think that way and you should explore the real history and I hope that we're doing that too and so yeah I'm very glad you brought that up because I think yeah, it's it's something we wouldn't want to ignore no. um, it's a bit like uh, I might not include this but it's like what um, Rich was saying in our JFK episode that he wanted to include how womanising JFK was yeah, exactly. and actually how awful he was to women around him and that's something it's a part of history that is just so much swept under the radar and is completely ignored our great men of history so many of them will have been rapists and monsters to the women and minorities around them and we just ignore that because we like our great man of history but ideas. I, 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 yeah but i think that is changing and i think that uh so long as people keep looking into it i think there's always room for improvement um so on that moral note, I think we're going to tie up this series on cities. I hope you guys have enjoyed it. We've really enjoyed telling you these mm. stories. Um, and yeah, we will be back. We aren't going. Yep. We're just going to take a Taking little break. Taking a bit of a break. Yeah. And uh, Not we will. 100% sure how long it is at this point when we're recording this, but um, we'll probably be more sure once this is out. And yes. we'll, so you can check out our Instagram and hopefully we should have updates of when we will be returning whatever we're returning to whether it be cities or something brand new not quite sure yet but whatever it is it will be fun interesting strange history stories told in hopefully a more revisionist and modern way exactly um and and never stop looking guys and good luck for the future and we will be back in touch soon thanks for listening <laughs>